This is Africa Digest. Seventeen hundred hours Central African time on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. Hello, welcome to the program. My name is Spumele Lezondi, broadcasting to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. You can find us on 15235 kilohertz. That's on the 31 meter band. If you are in Southern Africa, you can also stream us channelafrica.co.za. I'm with Onelentinti with Senema Tebula and Musibudi Makura. Your top stories. South Sudan government and rebels sign peace deal to end years of civil war. Burundi's government has organized a workshop to work on roadmap for 2020 elections. A political analyst says Delil's resignation is a sign of her victory. In economic news, financial crime undercuts Africa's economic growth gains. And in sport, Russia Rasmus named Springbok squad named Springbok squad rather for the rugby championship. Yes, on Alenzinzi. Thank you, Paul. Fresh violence has erupted in Ethiopia's Somalia region following an apparent disagreement between the local authorities of the region and the central government. It's still unclear what triggered Friday's violence that has so far claimed more than 25 lives. The Somali region of Ethiopia has been a security challenge to the federal government for nearly a year now. Protesters set fire to a church, looted shops and targeted non-Somalis leaving the area. The Ethiopian government has recently accused regional officials of carrying out human rights abuses. Koleta Wanjohi has more. The soldiers engage paramilitary fighters in the region who have been accused of partly fueling ethnic violence with the neighboring Oromia region. Hundreds have died over time because of this. Journalists are now forced to depend on only the state media for updates from the region. Ethiopia's Somali region was the first area that was visited by the current Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed when he assumed power in April this year. He went there to try and ease tension between the ethnic Somali and Oromo communities which have been engaged in attacks regularly that have claimed lives of people. 27 members of Zimbabwe's opposition MDC have appeared in court on charges related to the violence that broke out in the capital Harare last week. The announcement of the result of the presidential elections triggered the violence in which six people were killed. President Emerson Nangagor has been declared winner of the historic first election since the downfall of Robert Mugabe. Nangagor has vowed to protect rights since his re-election, but the opposition says its members have been targeted. Kenya and Tanzania will on Tuesday mark 20 years since the devastating U.S. embassy bombing that thrust al-Qaeda onto the global stage. It was mid-morning and on August 7, 1998, when the first massive blast hit the U.S. embassy in downtown Nairobi, followed minutes later by an explosion in Dar es Salaam, killing a total of 224 people and injuring around 5,000. Islamist insurgency have wreaked havoc in the Sahel, Nigeria and Somalia and on several bloody occasions since the 1998 bombing in Kenya. 
A new, a new outbreak of Ebola has killed 20 people in the Democratic Republic of Congo's North Kivu region in less than two weeks. The announcement comes shortly after the World Health Organization declared that Ebola outbreak was over in the country. WHO Deputy Director General of Emergency Preparedness and Response, Peter Salama. We know, for example, that there have been around 20 deaths, but we can't at this stage confirm whether they are all probable or confirmed Ebola cases. We expect, however, that the overall case count will rise in coming days to weeks based on the trajectory of epidemics at this stage in their development. And lastly, more than 2,000 tourists have been evacuated from the Indonesian holiday island of Lombok after a powerful earthquake killed at least 98 people and damaged thousands of buildings. The 6.9 magnitude quake came just a week after another deadly tremor surged through Lombok and killed 17 people. Indonesia's President Joko Widodo says there should be emergency aid and transport. We should try to counter the effects of this quake as fast as possible, be it the evacuation of the dead and the injured, or logistics and other matters. I've told the Ministry of Transport that managing issues relating to tourists should be done as well as possible. Nothing should be left amiss, especially with regard to flights, which were delayed last night. Channel African News, I'm It is 17.05 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we continue to give you news from an African perspective. Thanks very much, Onele, for that update. Let's start in South Sudan where rival leaders have signed a final power-sharing deal aimed at ending a civil war that has killed tens of thousands of people and displaced millions in the world's youngest country. President Salva Kiir and his bitter rival, Riek Machar, were in neighboring Sudan to sign the deal, under which the main opposition leader is set to return to a unity government as the first of five vice presidents. The peace talks come as a part of a regional push aimed at achieving peace in South Sudan, which plunged into a devastating conflict just two years after its independence from Sudan. Channel Africa spoke to Manawa Peter from the Sudan People's Liberation Movement in opposition about the two significance about the significance rather of the deal. Uh, actually, what has been happened yesterday in Khartoum here is the signing of uh, new issues of our standing issues in uh, governance and, uh, and security. Uh, the protocol of the security arrangement which has been signed last month and then uh, they reached out some solution for the power sharing ratio. That's what they signed yesterday in front of uh, President Omar Hassan al-Bashir and guaranteed by uh, President Yuri Musafini. Also, the president of Djibouti participated on it, and also uh, the prime minister of Somalia and also the prime minister of Rwanda, they attend the, the ceremony. Uh, they signed outstanding issues yesterday, which is very good, uh, a good achievement for the people of South Sudan. Now, talk us through the security arrangement uh, agreed upon by both parties. Uh, actually, the aim of this uh, security arrangement, after ending of the period, period, they will be forming the new national army in South Sudan. And also there is a talk about containment area of these fighting forces. They will be contained in their areas. And then uh, the big train, and something called Joint Integrated Unit, 
between the two forces with the equal numbers. That will take the security and wow. And also they agree that uh, the downside of the forces, uh, they can have a new recommitment of 20% of these forces, and then others can go for the BDR because the, the, the numbers of the, uh, the forces in South Sudan is very big and it costs a lot of money. So they want to reduce it and train it, make it a professional army rather than uh, uh, this type of militia army. What are the timelines? When is this uh, national army going to be established? Uh, it will take more than two years because uh, after the signing, there will be three to four months. Uh, these forces will be contained in their areas and then be trained, equipped, and then be deployed to the to the major town and cities. And then the process will take more than two years to, to finish. So they can have a, a national army for the election or before the end of the interior period of the agreement, three years. Now, is Rick Machar happy with him being one of the four vice presidents under this uh, peace agreement? Uh, actually, it's not about him happy to be uh, one of the five deputies. But the issue is that uh, people of South Sudan, they have suffered for the last three to four years. As you know, uh, there is more than four to three million outside the country and also IDPs inside Juba and also issues of insecurity and you can understand also the economic collapse in the country. Uh, all these issues have a uh, side effect on the economic growth of the people of South Sudan. Uh, we agree that we'll take the seat of the first bank and the other deputies. Uh, we know that uh, what will happen next, we need people of South Sudan to feel that there is a peace, we give them the services. Because we failed since we signed the peace agreement 2005 up to now, to give them uh, what they thought the government of South Sudan should give them after taking their independence, like clean water, uh, roads, and electricity, and uh, health and education. Now, have other opposition factions also taken part in the signing ceremony, uh, Peter? Yeah, all the, the opposition part, they took uh, part of this ceremony, but uh, one party, it seemed like they have, uh, up to now, they have differences. We, we don't know what is happening between them. Is uh, NAS party, which lead by uh, uh, General uh, Thomas Cirillo. Uh, they divide themselves into two groups. One sign and one refuse to sign, but uh, they are still in, inside Sawa. They are discussing it. Uh, maybe they will release a statement today to, to, to show their position. But other parties, they signed the uh, they signed the deal with the observation. Uh, do you think this peace agreement is going to hold uh, given what happened in the past uh, because uh, this is the second attempt at a power-sharing government, isn't it, uh, since the start of uh, that civil war in 2013? Do you think um, it no. will hold this time around? Uh, you're, you're right. I cannot assure you that it holds, but the suffering of the people of South Sudan and the commitment that I saw from President Salfakir and Dr. Riek Mashar, and also there is a political will uh, from the both sides, plus uh, uh, the support of the region, who, who has been very serious, talking like President Uhuru, President Mousafini, President of, uh, of Djibouti, all of them, they encourage the, the leadership of South Sudan to take the responsibility, to have the, the political will to develop their country and to protect their people and to give them peace. I think this time uh, the peace uh, will halt. That's um, Nawa Peter, spokesperson of the Sudan People's Liberation Movement in opposition, talking to Kumbero Mujerere. He is in Khartoum in South Sudan, in Sudan rather.
And the government of Burundi organized a workshop for political parties last Friday to work on a roadmap for 2020 elections. Part of the opposition boycotted the workshop, accusing the government to try to cheat the international community and escape from its responsibility of setting a conducive environment for a free and fair election. Bernard Bangokira is in Bujumbura. 22 political parties out of 32 that were invited by the Home Affairs Ministry attended the Friday workshop organized in the aim of preparing a roadmap for 2020 general elections in Burundi. 20 of them, almost all of them being close allies of the ruling Senate Party, endorsed the drafted document which describes the main activities to be undertaken towards the general elections in 2020. Phineas Nigaba, the spokesman of Frodebu Party, did not sign it for him. The workshop is just a strategy planned by the government to circumvent the expected dialogue process due to be convened in days to come. If we read between lines, we find that they want to circumvent the dialogue process conducted by the sub-region in order to set up a roadmap for the 2020 elections. So why do they want to anticipate? They normally had to wait for the Entebbe or Arusha process. We think the reason they want to anticipate is that they want to go there with a preconceived document to be presented as so-called roadmap supposed to have been agreed upon by political parties. We can't endorse that that Frodebu puts for one dialogue. If they want to force things, we're not there. We cannot sign the document. The Frodebu party that I have represented can in no way sign that so-called road map because it contains a lot of gaps and we have not been involved in drafting the document. If we go through the document, it is clear that it has been drafted somewhere else. By who? We don't know. For the Home Affairs Ministry, there's no surprise to hear such comments from Frodebu as an opposition party, minimizing the stance of the party's spokesman who refused to endorse the document. Pascal Banadagie, Burundi's Home Affairs Minister, said the move is just a sign that democracy is strong in Burundi. We are familiar with such a tongue of Frodebu, but for me it is good because it is a sign of a strong democracy. Having people thinking this or that way, that's normal in democracy. If that were the case, why did we allow such a debate almost for hours? Even political party had a room to speak out and formulate its propositions. He himself took part and no one was denied an opportunity to speak. Everyone benefited enough time to speak and formulate their propositions. He himself gave his propositions so his allegations are wrong. The proof is that even the compilation involved other political parties. The compilation commission included even members from the opposition, not from the ruling party only. That's why I say his allegations are false and completely untrue. Besides Frodebu, the Ranak Party National Rally for Change did not sign the document that all other present political leaders endorsed at the end of the workshop. The Independent Opposition Coalition, Amizera Barundi, or hope for Burundians, did not attend the workshop. For Agton Dwasa, the leader of the coalition, the priority is not writing a roadmap, but instead setting a sound and conducive political environment that would enable a free and fair electoral process. For him, the government has got a hidden agenda just to cheat the international community that the situation is fine, while, according to him, is not a case. What is prior to a roadmap? 
is first of all creating conducive environment in terms of political business and uh, social rights and the human rights of all the citizens. Such a debate has never occurred. And you all know that we, for instance, as Amizero, we, we are not even allowed to make our meetings while the guarantee of meeting is in the Constitution. What all this means if not a hidden agenda where they just want people they don't like to be in politics to go to Kayaza and endorse whatever they have prepared before. So we think that what should have been beneficial for Burundians is first of all to deal with these core issues like political tolerance, creating conducive in political environment. After all, we know that in 2020 we have to go to the polls. We don't need to, 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 to think about how do we go there if we cannot tackle the issues like respecting the rights of any citizen to enjoy his uh, basic rights as a citizen. We cannot just think about a roadmap to 2020 when we don't create conditions that could allow people who fled the country to come back and prepare for 2020 rendezvous. So we may say that uh, workshop in Kayanza was just meant to mislead the international opinion that things are moving in the right direction while not. We were not even given a draft of the supposed roadmap that we had to discuss. So it is uh, obvious that there was uh, just a hidden agenda, whereas uh, people could have uh, witnessed that a roadmap cannot be just uh, dealt with within a few couples of hours and then got there, signed by most of those who participated. 2020 it's a matter of uh, having supporters. It's a matter of uh, having a program to tell the people, to broke so that people can support you. It's only that. It's not uh, a roadmap. A roadmap, you know, even in 2013, they elaborate such a thing. It has just become a habit where they go on cheating, pretending that they are moving forward while they are just stagnant. With many eyeing the protracted dialogue process to be convened by the sub-region, the ruling party in Burundi seems less concerned for Everest and Shimia. There's no new point on the agenda to be discussed outside Burundi before responding to another invitation to Arusha. I will have to ask what has not been said so far to be the subject of another round of talks says Avarinsin Dashimiye, the Secretary-General of the CNDDFDD ruling party, and tweeted by a pro-government online publication. Though consultations have been undergoing since a few days past, no definite date is set for another round of talks, which, for the opposition, would allow drafting a reasonable and acceptable roadmap for the 2020 elections that could be endorsed by both sides, that is, the ruling party and its allies, and opposition inside and outside the country. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Bankokira, Reporting from Bujumbura. Hello, uh, hi, I'm Salif Keita. You're listening to Channel Africa.
It is 1719 Central African Time on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. Now, South African political analyst Theo Fender says the city of uh, Cape Town Mayor Patricia DeLille's resignation is a sign of her emerging victorious following months of a tug of war between her and her party, the Democratic Alliance. Uh, the DeLille resigned as mayor yesterday. She says she could no longer take the constant abuse despite the DA saying that her resignation was part of an agreement with the party. She, however, says she will be bringing civil litigation against at least 12 members of the DA in the coming months. DeLille signed on Sunday as the mayor with effect from the 31st of October. Yes, Fender. It took 13 months for the DA to realize that there are no winners in this standoff between the DA leadership and Ms. Patricia DeLille. And um, I think it was extremely costly in terms of legal action, in terms of the image of the party and these kind of things. So in the end, I think the reality that we eight months away from a crucial election, I think may just have turned the tables in terms of the parties talking to each other, seeking some form of solution. Now, when we look at how far uh, this issue between uh, Delors and the DA has gone on, would you say that there's more to, to this deal than what's really being revealed to us at this point? I think so, yes. I think um, these kind of happy ending stuff usually have a lot of things happening behind the scenes. So there's a fascinating chemistry issues like this, and there are several others that we can compare it with. And that is that you go for the ultimate solution, and then over time, I think, you start experiencing cost overruns. You start experiencing um, the difficulty with sustaining what you're busy with, whether it's on the one side or the other side. And then the chemistry part is when third parties are then start to talk to you, trying to convince each other to sit around the table and to work out a solution. And I think um, we haven't been told what exactly happened behind the scenes, but I think this is what I guess um, happened, that there was enough strong views on where the DA is going and where Patricia DeLille is going, and it's far better for her and for the party to resolve the matter to the extent that you can't actually think that six months ago one would not have guessed that they can work out a solution the way they did yesterday. Now, what's the likelihood of uh, Delil joining the economic freedom fighters or even the ruling ANC after the October 31st? I mean, we've seen a lot of these uh, politicians sort of uh, jumping ship. It's not uncommon to see that happening. How likely do you think this is to happen? Well, speculation, of course, was rife two, three months ago about exactly this scenario that you're posing. And when Dalian Porfu became legal advisor and advocate to Patricia DeLille, that even fueled further speculation. But I think in terms of yesterday's press release and the agreement apparently reached by the parties, it seems to me she'll stay within the DA. She may even, how unlikely it may have looked two or three weeks ago, she may even be part of the DA's fight back to hold the Western Cape, which means that uh, she will keep her benefits 
as executive mayor and may have a seat either in the legislature or in parliament, but I think parliament is a more likely choice for her to go to. And she may even be part of the DA's battle in terms of issues such as expropriation without compensation or the debate in parliament that is going to happen about where are we going with the constitution. She has some strong views on land. She has a legitimacy which I think is bigger and more comprehensive than that of the DA. So I think if I were to be asked who won, who lose, I would say Patricia DeLille won DA zero. Mm-hmm. And uh, just looking at uh, credibility and just the, the, the brand DA, what do you think this uh, whole saga has done for that brand? Oh, the brand was definitely damaged. They took a knock. We saw that in several surveys. Mm. It was in the social media. It was in the newspapers. There's no doubt about that. But I think with a well-managed campaign, they can still salvage some of it. And, you know, as we move closer to the election in May, we all assume May next year, I think we'll see political parties focusing, getting their messages sorted out, And uh, they may even surprise us by the way in which they do this. But I think in the end, this has been what most people thought would happen in the end, that they would get some form of solution, some form of agreement between the parties. But I was, even myself, has been surprised by the way in which it was done. It may just be, if we look at Mr. Little. You know, she's a senior politician. She's in politics, well, for the last 30 years. And I think it's also time for her to take stock of where she's going and where she want to be. But I don't think joining the EFF or the ANC at this stage seems an option. That's the offender, political and policy specialist at Northwest University. Zimbabwe has uh, spoken and has renewed its mandate to its ZANU-PF president, Emerson Mnangagwa, who won the election by 50.8% of the votes against his close contender, Nelson Chamisa of the MDC, who only got 44.3% of the, percent of the vote. Now, the opposition has been crying foul after the election results were announced, saying there were some irregularities during the vote counting. While election day was peaceful, Protests rocked the capital, Harare, over the delay in announcing the poll results and six people were killed in an army crackdown against protesters. To help us analyze the situation, we spoke to Southern Africa political analyst Dr. Ibo Mandaza, Dr. Shingai Mudizwa Mangiza, a political lecturer at South Africa's Western Cape University, and AC Lumumba, a political consultant and strategist. The decision election again, to be brief, I'm informed that the MDC allies are in court this morning challenging the results, both presidential and parliamentary, and that there is overwhelming and compelling evidence that the rigging was quite widespread, especially with respect to the presidential ballot. We have to wait and hear from the court. Dr. Muti Zamangiza, what do you think? I do think that um, there, there does remain uh, a bit of a dark cloud over the elections, and... The reason I say this is that uh, I think people have still have vivid memories of the election 
uh, in 2008, which was equally contentious. And uh, if you could recall, the results were also delayed. So I think the present election, in essence, particularly in regards to the release of the presidential uh, results, which are delayed by a day, is reminiscent of that particular experience. So that has, you know, elicited a lot of doubt. Now we are hearing, you know, that there, there are two sets uh, of results, the ones by the MDC and the ones that we, we saw announced by the state broadcaster on the evening of the 2nd. I think whichever way one looks at it, these results were always going to be very contentious, regardless of the outcome. And the way I see it is that the only way for this election, to, for this cloud to be removed, is that if you know, uh, both parties actually do go to court and available evidence is heard by the Constitutional Court and the determination is, is made from there. I think that is the only way that, uh, at this particular point in time, given that it's unlikely both sides can agree, uh, that's probably the only the best course right now for for legal action to be actually, to actually determine the outcome. Talk about another elephant in the room here. The European Union Election Observer Mission said that the election was characterized by an improved political climate, inclusive participation rights, and a peaceful vote, but unlevel playing field, intimidation of voters, and lack of trust in the process. The common Wealth Mission condemned the shooting and beating of unarmed protesters uh, this week, and African observers were less critical of the situation. But the conduct of election observers has also come under severe criticism, hasn't it, Archie? Yes, it has. But understand, when you say election observers, and you're referring to European, you know, a European observer mission that is led from Brussels, they haven't seen a lot. You know, the reason why the African Union is not as unforgiving as the European Union, is try and go and witness elections in Cameroon, where literally kids and women are being put on the firing line and they're being shot in front of the camera. Go to Congo and look at the election happening in the Congo. So compare based on what they have seen elsewhere. Whereas if you're coming from Europe, you're comparing elections, you know, day, which are literally day and night. Now, understand also in the language in the European Commission statement that they don't say the level playing field is not balanced because ZANU-PF has a head start, or they don't say ZANU-PF is the one that is intimidating voters. The intimidation of voters is happening largely in the opposition more than it's actually happening in ZANU-PF. I'll give you an example. The debacle between Tokozani Kupe and Nelson Chamisa as they fought for the name of the party MDCT has produced more insults, more fights, more promises of death and violence than anything ZANU-PF has. Primary elections of both political, leading political parties produced chaos. On ZANU-PF's hand, you had people who were swearing they would never accept the result until they had won. On MDCs, and you had people who were saying there should be no election unless I win. Um, so both parties, you know, has, have a lot of improvements to make. But overall, when you look at these observer mission statements, they are highlighting two principal things. One, Zimbabwe has made steps forward from where we were before. Two, Zimbabwe needs to work extra strong to strengthen our institutions. The trouble is in the institutions more than it is actually in the political parties. We need to capacitate ZEC 
so that the job of educating the voter happens earlier and happens better. That is a political consultant and strategist, A.C. Lumumba. You also heard from Dr. Ibo Mandaza, a Southern African political analyst, and Dr. Shingai Mutizwa-Mangiza, a political lecturer at South Africa's Western Cape University, speaking to Kumbero Munjarere. It is now time for news headlines. Here's on Lentzinti. Twenty-seven members of Zimbabwe's opposition MDC have appeared in court. Kenya and Tanzania will on Tuesday mark 20 years since the devastating U.S. embassy bombing that thrust al-Qaeda onto the global stage. And a new outbreak of Ebola has killed 20 people in the Democratic Republic of Congo's North Kivu region. Channel Africa News, I'm Onelinsinzi. It is 17.32 Central African time right here on Channel Africa, where we continue to give you news from an African perspective. My name is Spumele Lezondi with you until 1800 hours Central African time. Now, the government of the Democratic Republic of Congo has launched a sensitization campaign against Ebola in Beni in the eastern province of North Kivu. The campaign was launched as the number of Ebola-infected people is increasing on a daily basis. Although teams of epidemiologists are busy working in the field to try and contain the situation, Jean-Noël Bamwenze is in Kinshasa. Less than two weeks after the World Health Organization, in short WHO, declared that Ebola was over in the Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC, 20 people have lost their lives and dozens of cases of the highly contagious disease have been reported in the country's North Kivu region. The region is in the eastern part of Congo. The first cases of Ebola that were declared over were reported in Etipo in northeastern DRC. WHO says protecting people in the region from the new Ebola outbreak is going to be, as it put it, very, very complex given the huge logistical challenges and the ongoing armed conflict in the region. Here is Peter Salama, World Health Organization's Deputy Director General of Emergency Preparedness and Response, confirming that indeed the new outbreak of Ebola has killed 20 people in less than two weeks. We know, for example, that there have been around 20 deaths, but we can't at this stage confirm whether they are all probable or confirmed Ebola cases. We expect, however, that the overall case count will rise in coming days to weeks based on the trajectory of epidemics at this stage in their development. Salama also disclosed that an alert was raised on the 25th of July after a woman and seven members of her immediate family 
died after showing symptoms consistent with Ebola. That event appears to have been a woman who was admitted to hospital around Benny and on discharge had recovered from the original complaint but on discharge came down with a fever and other symptoms that were clinically consistent with Ebola and later on seven of her direct relatives also contracted the disease. Peter Salama points out that the long-standing conflict in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, involving more than 100 armed groups, creates an additional level of difficulty in containing the deadly disease. It's going to be a very, very complex operation, as I mentioned earlier, on the scale of degree of difficulty. Uh, trying to extinguish an outbreak of a deadly high-threat pathogen in a war zone reaches the top of any of our scales. Peter Salama says one million of North Kivu region's eight million residents are displaced and now with the outbreak of the new Ebola getting access to them will require an armed escort. Salama says there is also the traditional threat that Congolese fleeing violence may cross into neighboring Uganda, South Sudan, Tanzania and Burundi. It is feared that the Congolese may infect people in those countries with Ebola. However, Peter Salama says additional surveillance measures have been taken by WHO staffers at crossing points. WHO says in the previous Ebola outbreak, a key part of the emergency response involved tracing people who had come into contact with the suspected carriers of the disease. WHO staffers traveled hundreds of kilometers on motorbikes to perform their duties, but WHO says this time of a new outbreak, traveling is going to be more difficult due to the fact that there is a high level of insecurity in the region. Peter Salama, World Health Organization's Deputy Director General of Emergency Preparedness and Response, has good news and bad news. First, Salama tells us the bad news. The bad news is that this strain of Ebola carries with it the highest case fatality rate of any of the strains of Ebola, anywhere above 50% and higher, according to previous outbreaks. So it's the most deadly uh, variant of the Ebola uh, virus strains that we have. That's the bad news. The good news is that uh, we do have, although it's still an investigational product, a safe and effective vaccine that we were able to deploy last time round. That was Peter Salama. World Health Organization's Deputy Director General of Emergency Preparedness and Response. Salama's remarks come less than two weeks after the World Health Organization's Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus declared in the Congolese capital Kinshasa that Ebola outbreak was over. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. It is 17.38 Central African time right here on Channel Africa where we continue to give you news from an African perspective. My name is Spumelele Zondi and I'll be with you until 1800 hours Central African time.
All right, now the South African-based disaster relief organization Gift of the Givers celebrates its 26th anniversary today. Since its inception in 1992, it worked in most of the worst disaster zones in the world like Bosnia, Pakistan, Nepal, Haiti, Somalia, Zimbabwe and Libya. Today, the organization has three major distribution centers in South Africa with officers in various countries around the world. Locally, it has a permanent staff of only 60, but scores of volunteers with medical professionals and a permanent staff of, and a specialist rather among them. Gift of the Givers founder, Imtia Suleiman. The people we've met over the years, the people who've joined us and worked with us, the capability of the people in the country, the medical personnel, the search and rescue teams, the skill of our people, the Ubuntu spirit of the people. We've discovered spirituality among our people. We've seen goodness of our people. We've seen the suffering of people in all parts of the world. We've seen how they've embraced that suffering, how they've accepted the aid, and how people have become so aware of God Almighty in all those difficult situations. Our giving has actually made us grow. In our giving, we have received. And over the years, we've added different types of projects, 21 categories of projects, dealing with human as human, not worried about race, color, religion, class, political affiliation, just doing what we do as humans. And we found a bond of brotherhood between the teams that go out and between the people that receive our aid. It has been a wonderful growth path, and the rate of expansion and growth of the organization truly shows that the almighty hand on the organization and the people involved in it. When you started Gift of the Givers 26 years ago, what was your expectations right from the start? It started with a spiritual instruction. That's what makes it very different. I met a spiritual teacher in Turkey, in Istanbul, and it was on a Thursday night, the 6th of August, 1992, when the spiritual instructor looked me in the eye. My son, I'm instructing you to form an organization. The name will be Gift of the Givers. It will serve all people of all races, of all religions, of all colors, of all classes, of all cultures, of any geographical location, and of any political affiliation, and will serve them unconditionally. This is an instruction for you for the rest of your life. And whatever you do is done through you and not by you. Given the spiritual nature of the organization, we don't think how long it's going to last, where it's going to go to. We just carry on the instructions and you do what you have to do. Since the inception of Gift of the Givers in 1992, the organization has worked in most of the worst disaster zones in the world, Bosnia, Pakistan, Nepal, Somalia, Malawi, Libya, to just name a few. But you are also very, very involved here in South Africa when there are local disasters. Our involvement in South Africa is far bigger than our involvement in other parts of the world. We are South African and this is our country and our people come first. But it's just that the media never carried many of the interventions in the country. The interventions have started off with simple things like 94. There was a hurricane in Impendle in KwaZulu-Natal on Christmas Day and people lost all the Christmas items and we responded and it was very, very strange where the Christian people have said the Muslims came to help them on their holy day. It was about building relationships between different people. The following year, it was a Christmas Day flood in the whole of the Edendale area. We got involved again. And over the period of years, from 94 onwards, right up to the current time, we've been involved in many types of natural disasters or man-made disasters, be it floods, hurricanes, shack fires, all kinds of disasters in different townships throughout South Africa. In recent months, the crisis that came was a big fire in Naizana in June 2017. That was followed by the drought that we're still suffering now in parts of the Western Cape, Northern Cape, parts of Eastern Cape, Free State, and Southern Cape. And our intervention then moved on from 
first providing bottled water, then putting in boreholes, and then providing fodder for the thousands of animals that are dying. I know that currently you still have offices in Lilongwe in Malawi and another office in Harare in Zimbabwe. But what about projects that were started, for instance, in Syria, where we opened a hospital? What about places like Somalia? Are you still active there? Yes, we have permanent offices in Syria. We have a staff of 230, manning the biggest hospital in North Syria. We serve 14,000 patients a month in that hospital. We run our own refugee camps. We have our own feeding center. And we send our medical teams to different hospitals when there's intense bombing in other areas. We have our own ambulances. So we have a permanent office and permanent staff in Syria. We have a permanent office in Gaza. We set up one of the biggest women and child care center in Gaza. We help patients, you know, who cannot afford medical care. We provide food parcels and educational support for a lot of women who have lost their husbands. In the recent crisis on the Great Land March, for six to seven weeks, our teams were the first teams on the front line treating the patients and injured civilians and moving them to the government hospital. We then have, of course, a permanent office in Yemen. There, 18 million people are on the verge of starvation. Many will die if the war doesn't stop and food doesn't come in. We've sent in container loads of food, we've sent in cholera medication and other types of medication, and we've set up water plants from which we provide water by trucks to various areas. And then, of course, we have the full-time office in Somalia. We were there from 2004 in a place called Harfoon, which was affected by the tsunami of 2004. And from there, we stayed on in Harfoon, but in 2011, we moved into Mogadishu with huge teams when there was a lot of fighting, but massive, massive malnutrition, and thousands of children were dying a day. In that mission, we took in 200 containers of aid, flew in 13 planes, took in 70 medical personnel, and we've expanded now towards the south, to Lower Shabal, to Johar, more to the north. We've got medical centers, we've got medical teams, we do entrepreneurship projects, we do job creation, we do life skills. So the program in Somalia has extended substantially from 2011. Marking 26 years today, you've said from small beginnings there are now 21 different types of responses that can come from Gift of the Givers. Are there any immediate plans for the future for the next 26 years? I always answer that question by saying there never was a plan from the first day and it worked very, very successfully. Because it's a spiritual organization with a spiritual start and a spiritual instruction from a spiritual teacher who said in everything that I will know what to do, I is in inverted commas because he said, my son, whatever you do is done through you and not by you. So we open the soul to that deception and wherever the message takes us, we will continue. We will not plan anything. We will just go as inspiration comes and the direction comes. It worked for 26 years. It should work for the next 26 years also. That's Dr. Imtia Suleiman, founder of the South African-based disaster relief organization, Gift of the Givers, talking to Jinin Kutze. It is 17.45 Central African time. It's your economic news now. Here's Usana Matibula. Good evening. Thanks, as Pumelele. Kenya's dominant telecoms operator, Safaricom, does not hinder competition. Its chief executive, Bob Collimore, told lawmakers as he returned to work after a nine-month absence for medical treatment. The country's industry regulator recommended in a draft proposal in May that Safaricom, which controls 67% of Kenya's mobile market, 
should offer rivals access to its transmission sites and its vast network of mobile money outlets to increase competition in the sector. The regulator is looking into whether any measures should be taken to boost competition in the market following the Communications Authority of Kenya's draft proposal. And the Fifth African Leadership Forum has brought together, among others, uh, seven former heads of states in Africa and has concluded in Kigali, Rwanda. The forum was hosted by former president of Tanzania, Benjamin Mkapa, and organized by the Wangozi Institute. Leaders and attendants uh, called on African countries to address the rising illicit financial flows, tax evasion, and misallocation of Africa's resources. Rwandan President Paul Kagame says the African continent has resources for development, but there are underlying challenges in governance. In Africa, we have everything we need in real terms. Whatever is lacking, we have the means to acquire. And yet, we remain mentally married to the idea that nothing can get moving without external finance. We are even begging for things we already have. That is absolutely a failure of mindset. And the chief executive of British Airways has uh, complained uh, that uh, two-hour queues are becoming a norm for many passengers arriving at Heathrow International Airport in London. Alex Cruz questioned what kind of message that sent out as the country prepares to build links outside of the EU. The BBC's Theo Leggett reports. Mr. Cruz said that visitors from outside the European Economic Area were regularly being forced to wait for two hours at border control at Heathrow, and even arrivals from within Europe were often waiting for more than an hour. He called on the Home Secretary to take action to resolve what he called a border farce once and for all. His comments echoed recent criticisms from the Airport Operators Association, which also highlighted cuts to Border Force's budget. In a statement, the government said it wouldn't compromise essential checks at UK borders, but added that 200 extra staff were being deployed at Heathrow over the summer. Facebook has asked uh, large U.S. banks to share detailed financial information about their customers as part of an effort to offer new services to users. The financial information asked from the banks include card transactions and checking account balance. Facebook, which is trying to deepen user engagement, has asked J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, Citigroup and U.S. Bancorp to discuss potential offerings it could host for banks for bank customers on Facebook Messenger. The social media company says it will not use the bank data for ad targeting purposes or share it with uh, third parties. Some currency news now. The Turkish lira tumbling to a record low against the dollar on news that the Trump administration is reviewing Turkey's duty-free access to the U.S. market. This could affect some $1.66 billion of Turkish imports. The review by the U.S. Trade Representative's Office came in after Turkey imposed retaliatory tariffs on U.S. goods in response to American tariffs on steel and aluminium. And that's your economics news.
Thanks very much, Hussain. It is 17.50 Central African time. Masibudi Makura has a sports news. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with rugby news, Springbok coach Rassi Erasmus says he never doubted that Sia Kulisi was going to remain Springbok captain in the rugby championship, even with the return of captains Warren Whiteley, as well as Eben Eatsbeth to the national team. Erasmus says he was impressed with the manner in which Kulisi carried himself during the June incoming series win against England and the way he also played. And after the success uh, um, Sia had, I wouldn't say it was success or relative success we had against England. We definitely weren't <laughs> world beaters there, but you know we managed to win the, the series. And the way uh, Sia carried himself, and, and, and I think through a lot of emotional stuff, not 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 uh, negative emotional stuff. I think a lot of emotional stuff on his shoulders. He had he still he still he still carried it well and and played relatively well. I think you'll see a Sia now uh, uh, who start playing really well. While Erasmus has named three uncapped players in junior Springbok fly half Damon Willemsa, Bulls loose forward Marco van Staden, as well as Lions loose forward Kyle Brink, Erasmus explains what it is about each player that convinced him to select them for the team. Damien uh, Willemsa, which you know, uh, we decided back in June, let, let him play in Junior World Cup and go through those ranks and, you know, um, and work his way up, although he was in camp with us uh, in those alignment camps. I think he's one of the guys who's physically already ready for it at his age. So, Carl uh, Brunk uh, is, is probably one of the guys who was on the radar way back, uh, but just consistently had the injury with his shoulder and the nerve and didn't, didn't play consistently. So, um, I think he had a little bit of a run now and he showed again on Saturday um, that he, uh, you know, he can make the step up. Marco is obviously the guy that was, was, was in the mix. 100% who probably would have started uh, in the English Test matches as the first choice and, and then the match before the last one the Bulls played, uh, you know, his, his, his new wins. Meanwhile, English Premiership side Bath have signed South African prop Jacques van Rooyen from Super Rugby finalist the Lions. Van Rooyen started the Super Rugby final in Christchurch this past Saturday with the Lions suffered a 37-18 defeat to the Crusaders. Van Rooyen has made more than 60 appearances for the Johannesburg-based Lions, making his debut four years ago. He will enhance Bath's front row strength and competition for the loose head position after their last England hopeful Bino Obano to an injury earlier this year that could see him miss the entire 2018-2019 campaign. Now to tennis new South African rising tennis star Lloyd Harris of Cape Town won his biggest title on Sunday at the 75,000 US dollar ATP challenger in Kentucky, United States. Harris was impressive all day not dropping a serve once and only facing one break point in the match to upset number 8 seeded Stefano Napolitano of Italy in straight sets of 6 Four six three in the final, the victory takes Harris forty seven spots up the ATP World Rankings to a career high of number one hundred and sixty one. 
And finally in golf news, four-time major champion and South African Ernie Els has finished in the top 10 for the first time in over two years at the European Tours Fiji International. Els caught at a final round 65 to finish at 12 under for a share of third, two spots behind eventual winner Rachanieta Bula of India. Now Els' last top 10 finish prior to this past weekend came at the PGA Tours Quicken Loans at Congressional Country Club back in June 2016 where he finished in fifth position. Those are sports news at the sound back with more sports news just before 8 p.m. Central African time. This is Africa Digest. Right, it's 17.55 Central African time right here on Africa Digest recapping our top stories. South Sudan government and rebels sign peace deal and end years of civil war. Burundi's government has organized a workshop to work on roadmap for 2020 elections. And a political analyst says Delil's resignation is a sign of her victory. That wraps up Africa Digest for this half. From myself, Spumalele Zondi producer Ronald Piri, technical producer Adrian Kenny and the rest of the team, thank you very much for listening. You can send your emails to info at channelafrica.co.za. Your SMS is to plus 27823325905 and your tweets to Channel Africa One. We leave you with Samahani by Dobenyaore.
qui j'ai fait du mal Je vous dis sans m'en rendre Pardon Pardon 